Hello again, everyone. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful evening right now. It's Saturday night, um, and it's, it's beautiful with these massive snowflakes falling. I hope you can enjoy uh, the, the warmer weather we've had. It's warm comparatively, obviously, as we uh, inch our way towards December. Um, but welcome. Uh, again, we're in Ephesians 4. We're continuing on in Ephesians 4. Uh, today, we're looking at verses... Um, basically just verses 7 to 10, and we'll be focusing a lot on verses uh, on verse 7 and a little bit on verse 8 to kind of help us with that. Um, it's part 3 in uh, in this series where we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. So part 3 of 5, we'll have two more two more weeks of, uh, of looking at these verses. Um, so today we're in, in verses 7 to 8, and then we'll look at 9 and 10 uh, just briefly as well. But I'll read, I'll read, um, just for context, I'll read from verse 1, and I'll read from verse 1 to verse 10, and then uh, and we'll get into it. So this is Ephesians 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, that is, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. This is the word of the Lord. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is your word that sustains us, that you give us breath. Lord, but we are sustained by your word as, as our living bread, Christ as our living waters, Christ as our bread of life. Lord, we thank you that we know you. We can, we can know you by your word. We thank you that it is our source of truth about who you are. We thank you that you have revealed, it, revealed yourself uh, to us in it. We thank you that you have not left us to our own devices. Lord, just pray for this uh, this body. Continue to work in this body here at Churchill. Continue to work in the lives, um, those, uh, Lord, of those who are uh, in contact with us as well. And we need you to work here because without you, we cannot do it. So, Lord, come. And for your name's sake, come, Lord. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Uh, so I'll just go just go through context quick again, just so we know where we're at. Um, if you've been with us, this will kind of be, be cat, catch up, I guess. But uh, we've been through the first three chapters of Ephesians. And, and those three chapters are all calling. Paul goes through everything that... that um, that God has done through Christ in our lives, how he's made us alive, how he's brought us to life from 
from death. And then so now in chapters four, five, and six, which we're looking at, um, Paul talks about conduct. So the first three chapters are calling, the next three are conduct, and right now we're in conduct. So it's going to be a lot of prescriptive. It's not going to be descriptive, saying this is what God has done, but it's going to be prescript prescriptive, meaning this is what you need to do. So God has done this, now you do this. And so we're kind of in the midst of, uh, of that. We're getting right into the heat of it. Um, next, on a smaller con uh, in a smaller context, in chapter 4, what we looked at was our individual walk as Christians, how we need to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. That is laid out in chapters 1 to 3. So in verses 1 to 2, Paul is giving us what our individual responsibilities are. And then in verses 3 to 6, he's kind of telling us to live in unity. So he's saying, as individuals, make sure you're walking humbly and with patience and with gentleness. Um, and then in verses 3 to 6, he talks about how we need to walk in unity. And he gives the Trinity as a great example for that unity. Now, what we're looking at is um, the first part of, of diversity. Um, so this, when we look at verses 7 to 10, we're looking at the, the initial onset of diversity, I'll call it. Um, and then verses 11 to 12, we'll look at how that diversity continues on and brings us to maturity. And that, that's what we'll look at next. So um, right now we're at diversity. Next week, we'll look at a bit more diversity. And then the week after that, we'll look at how the, the diversity that we see today and next week leads us to maturity as Christians. And so here we are. There'll be a, And the reason we're split up is because there'll be a bit of overlap between verses 7 to 16 uh, as we just kind of go back and forth looking at it all. Um, as a uh, as a whole, just rather than just taking out the parts. So here in verses seven to ten, we have diversity. Paul has said walk in unity, but now in verse seven he says, "But it's like it, but is one of those articles that's like a therefore. Um, when you see a therefore, you want to know what it's there for. When you see a when you see a but, careful where your mind goes there. When you see a, a but, what you want to do is say, okay, why is this there? What is Paul saying? Because he's going another direction. So he's saying, walk in unity, but walk in diversity. He's saying, walk worthy of your calling. Make sure, make sure that you yourself are walking by the Spirit. Make sure you as a body of believers are walking by the Spirit in unity. But, however, God has also given each of you different gifts. You are the same, but different. You need to walk in unity but you need to walk in diversity. Verse seven, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I'll turn to um, 1 Corinthians 12 and I'll just read a section there to help us kind of get this, this image of what Paul is talking about when he's thinking of the unity of believers, but also the diversity. Um, so this is this is 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, chapter 12, verses 12 to 20. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But 
as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So here what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 12 is that just like a human body with Christ as its head, just as a human body, every single part is different. You have two hands, sure, and ten fingers, but they're different hands. And the hands aren't a foot, and the ear isn't your eye. Each part is necessary to actually constitute the whole. We know that if uh, we're reading a book with the girls right now, and the grandpa in the book has a peg leg because he was a, a some kind of some kind of pirate, um, some uh, a seafaring gentleman. Um, and so, if you have if you have a body that is missing a leg, if you've got a peg leg, you know there's something wrong. You we're not born like that. When we're born, we're we're you know in, in a perfect world, we're born. Um, with everything working. And you can take that analogy a bit further as we look at, you know, issues in the church because there's sin in the world. And while we look at this and say, this is what the perfect church should look like, we're, we're never going to have a perfect church because of sin. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll leave the analogy there. What Paul is saying is that we're not replicas of each other. That's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 12, and that's what he's saying here as he's getting into it here in Ephesians 4. He's saying we're not replicas of each other. We all have different presuppositions about life. We all have different origins of worldview. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different cultures. We all have different stories that tell us who we are, ideas about where we came from, ideas about where we need to go. And what Paul is saying is that we have to come back to the word. We have to come back to that one common denominator, that one thing that brings us all together, and that is chapters 1 to 3. This is what Jesus did. This is what God has done in Jesus, predestining you for adoption. And now, because of that, walk this way. Sure, you have different backgrounds. Sure, you have different cultures. Sure, you have so many different things that, that in the world you would never get along. But when you come into Christ, and come into the, the local body, into the church. Because you are walking by the Spirit, you can walk in unity. And because you are walking in unity, you can then walk in diversity. What Paul is getting at here is the gospel. Regeneration. God creating us anew. So that where, if we were in the world, we would never get along. Here in this church, you have a whole bunch of people that are family. And live as family because of what Christ has done on the inside of them. And so verse seven, we are to walk in diversity. Uh, as Paul says here, that, that gifts, gifts are given to each of us, but they're for the benefit of all. So the first point, we're in verse seven uh, for the first point, and that is gifts are given and it's not by our will. It's by God's will. But grace was given to each one of us. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we are all receiving specific things according to Christ's specific gift. Some have more grace than others. Some have stronger faith than others. And as we'll see, some have different gifts and those gifts are exercised in different ways. So that's Ephesians 4 verse 7. I'm going to turn to uh, just through a, a couple verses here, just to help us cement this idea in our mind that it is not by our will that we receive the gifts of the Spirit. 
just like it's not by our will that we are predestined for adoption. First one's uh, Romans 12, 6, and I'll, I'll put them down at the bottom of the screen there so you can, um, you don't have to remember or, or, or take notes too hastily. So Romans 12, 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Again, having gifts that differ, different gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So let us, the gifts that we have, we need to use them. And those gifts are different and they're different in different ways and, and um, they're different because of the grace that is given. That's what Paul says here in Romans 12. Next, we'll go to 1 Corinthians 12 and I'll, I'll read some verses through there. Uh, and then we'll be in Exodus 35 if you wanted to go there after. So 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, verses uh, 4 to 7. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So that's where we see that, that we have all these different varieties, but they're given to us by God, and they're actually given to us for the common good. They're not, they're not for ourselves. They're for, they're for us to serve others. Next is verse 11, still in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. All these, that is the gifts, Paul has just gone through a list. Um, we, we won't get into it now, but Paul has just gone through one of his lists of the spiritual gifts. And he says, all these, all these gifts are empowered by one and the same spirit who, who what? Who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Here it is saying that the spirit is giving the gifts to us according to his own purpose, according to his own will. Us individually, not as big groups saying like, okay, that church is going to um, have this gift and that church over there is going to have this gift. No, no, individually giving them, apportioning them to us as he wills according to the Spirit's purpose. Verse 18, But as it is, God arranged the members in the one body, each one of them as he chose. So there's some Trinitarian language here happening, as we see in um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. It's according to Christ's gift. So we have these this grace given to us according to Christ's gift. In verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 12, we see that it's the Spirit who is... Um, apportioning these gifts to us as he wills. But then in verse 18, it says that it is God arranging the members in the body in specific spots, saying, okay, this person's a finger, this person's a finger, this person's a hand, this person's a foot, this person's a knee, this is what's going, this is what God is doing. And he's doing that as he chose. So as you can see, it has nothing to do with us. It's not like, it's not like we say, hey, I, I really feel like I want to have the gift of wisdom and the gift of knowledge because that'll really you know um, make me feel important so that's what i really want god so so i'm going to reach out and take those things or more dangerously more pertinent to our own time it's not like we can have a school that says hey come to our school and we'll teach you how to use all of these gifts there's prophecy there's miracles there's healing we'll have some um, some hospitality, and we'll teach you how to use each of those gifts. So instead of us saying, okay, God has given me the gift, the Spirit has chosen um, individually who's going to have what gift, and God has placed us in certain parts of the, uh, as, as certain people in certain parts of the body. 
God has done that, but we're going to move away from that and move into a place where we say, you know what, you know what, God, I don't think you're right on this. I want these gifts. Consider how dangerous that is to go to a place where we say, no, Lord, I know better. And so that's why it has to be not by our will. God knows much better than we do. I'll turn to Exodus 35 just to, um, uh, not, not in my head I'm thinking to give us some Old Testament flavor, but, but Exodus 35 is extremely important as we see, um, not just for um, some of the more spectacular gifts, but even for something simple like the skills that were given. So in Exodus 35, uh, the Israelites have come out of the wilderness. They've uh, come into the wilderness, sorry, come out of Egypt into the wilderness. And um, God has given them instructions on what to do for the tabernacle and how to make sacrifices, where to do them, and um, how to build everything, what, what colors need to be, what the tassels are, uh, how far apart the tassels have to be on the, um, on the ephod, just as examples. So then in Exodus 35, um, God, God tells Moses to get people to bring gifts and then he'll get some craftsmen to make them, make the things for the tabernacle. So this is verse, verse 30. I'll just read verse 30 to 35. And what we're looking for here is that there are people who have special skills, um, that are gifts from God. Uh, and I'll go into a little more, but, um, as we see here, some of us have skill sets that are gifts. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Fur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Ohaliab, the son of Asimimak, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine, uh, fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. So what's, what, what Moses is relaying here as, as he writes Exodus is, that in the tabernacle, in the creation of the tabernacle, God had poured out his spirit on, on a few people to teach them and, and help them how uh, to build the tabernacle. And so what, what the point is there is that it's not just the spectacular gifts that we think of um, that are going to be given to us by God. And this will be important as we wrestle through as a church family, what gifts we have and how to exercise them. Um, there is, however, a caveat to that, and not all skill is God-given. I can build a house. I, I, you know, I can I can build a house from the ground up, from from setting rebar and pouring concrete to framing walls and um, and building steps and, and sheeting the roof, and uh, I, I can do that. But but God hasn't given me the skill for that. I can do it, and it's and it's a it's laborious, and and it would it would take a while. I've done it before, and I could I'm sure I could do it again. But it's not something that God has gifted me with. I can play guitar and I can, you know, sing somewhat adequately. But I don't think those are things that God has gifted me with for the for the edification of the church. 
we always run into dangers when we say that, oh, somebody is good at this, therefore they should do it. And when we look at the church, it's, it's much more dangerous when we say, well, just because somebody can sing and play guitar, they should therefore lead God's people in worship. And my own convictions come in there where I say, well, just because I can sing and play guitar doesn't mean I should lead God's people in singing worship. That's, that's another story. So what's our, what's our point? Our point here is that it's not by our will, these gifts, because God knows best. There's a, there's a scene in the Lord of the Rings movie. It's not in the book. Um, they kind of took some creative liberties and, and added it into the movie. But there's a scene in the Lord of the Rings movie where um, all of the, the fellowship is in uh, La Florian and they're just about to leave. And, and Galadriel and Celeborn, who are these, these high and mighty elves, um, the benevolent characters, if you will, um, uh, eternal and extremely powerful. Uh, they're giving gifts to everyone. And uh, they give some uh, a bow to Legolas the elf. They give uh, the hobbits some food and uh, a couple daggers. But then they give this one hobbit uh, a little a little box of, uh, and, and it's basically a seed from one of the trees that grows there. And he's supposed to take it home and plant it there. And he looks over at his buddies and they've got, they've got these really nice, um, what's to them is swords because they're, they're, they're hobbits. So um, they're, they're just daggers to us, but they've got these little swords and, and then the hobbit Samwise Gamgee, who, who got the little box with the seed in it, looks over and says, do you have any more of those nice shiny daggers? And that's what the, that's what's, we're not supposed to do. That's the opposite of, of what it means to trust in God. When he gives us a gift and we look at somebody else and we say, Lord, I want what he has. I don't want what you've given me. I want what that person has, or I want what that person has over there. I don't want what you've given me. What that betrays is, is not only our lack of trust, but our disregard for, for the knowledge uh, and the omniscience and the power uh, and the wisdom of God. Um, so the point is that God knows best. That's why it is his will. Trinitarian, uh, in Trinitarian language, it's his will for us, um, for giving us these gifts. Next, our next point is that um, grace is given and these, these spiritual gifts are given. And it is not by our work. So the first point it is that it, it's not our will, but God's will. Next it is that it is, it is not our work, but God's work. And we're here in verse 8. Um, Paul says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, our point here is that the victor apportions the spoils. So when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And this here, Paul is quoting Psalm 68. And some commentators think he's quoting verse 18. And then he's actually misquoting it. Or he's quoting a, a different version. He's quoting the Targum, which is um, a commentary on, on the Old Testament, Septuagint, on the Greek Old Testament. Uh, but, but I think what, what's more appropriate is that he's actually not misquoting Psalm 68, 18, but he's actually talking about the entire psalm as a whole. Um, 
But what it is, is, is this image of a victorious king who is victorious. He's won the battle and he's come back and there's this parade. And in this parade, he is, he is handing out all the spoils of victory to his people. That's, that's the image of Psalm 68. So it's this, this image or an illustration of this victory parade. Paul's kind of summarizing the entire, uh, the entire psalm. And it, it's this, I won't say it's the Santa Claus parade, but, but think of the Santa Claus parade and, um, you know, you got Santa Claus going through town and all these other, all these other floats and stuff. What they're doing is throwing out candy. And that's a simple way to think of it. But that, think of it that way, where, where there's this parade going through town and these people are throwing out candy and all the kids are on the side of the road. Big kids and little kids alike are, are running over to get candy. But that's the image, is that God, as the king, is leading this parade through town, distributing gifts to his people. What it's talking about is God's universal dominion. He is Lord and ruler of all, of all creation. And so he is giving gifts because he's the ruler and he has won the victory. That's what's happening. However, what Paul's doing here. And it's so amazing because what he's doing here is he's attributing it to Christ. He's saying that gifts were given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, the reason why Christ is giving these gifts, that's why the Bible says this. So Christ is giving us these gifts. That's why we can look back to Psalm 68, as Paul is saying, and say when he ascended, he led hosts of captives and gave gifts to men. Christ is the victor. Colossians 2.15 saith, when I get there, he, that is, that is Christ, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, that is demonic authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What's happening is that Christ is the victor. Christ has defeated death and hell and the devil. And now, in his victory parade, he is giving gifts to his church so that they can carry on his work. Uh, this is Hebrews, Hebrews 2. I'll read verses 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I'll end there. I'll just end at verse 15. So here in Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 15, Christ took on flesh, and because he, became, he came in the likeness of man and, and defeated the devil in the likeness of man for us, he triumphed. He destroyed the devil, and what he did is deliver us from the fear of death. So Christ is the victor. And, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses uh, 54 to 57, I'll read those. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, that's good. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, that is, when the thing that is destroyed puts on that which cannot be destroyed, and the mortal puts on immortality, or that thing that dies puts on that which cannot die. 
Then shall come to pass, this is Paul again, looking back to the Old Testament. Then shall come to pass, saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What victory is that? The victory over death. Christ is the victor. And as the victor, he gives his people what they need to continue the fight. Christ is leading the parade through town, the victor parade, handing out gifts to all of his people. As the king, as the ruler, as the one who has dominion over all, he is the one who has done all of the work. He is the one who is handing out all the gifts. As the victor, God, through Christ's work, through the Holy Spirit's presence, gives his people what they need to continue to fight for his kingdom. God provides us with everything we need to be salt and light in this world. God provides us with everything we need to show the world that we are Christ's disciples. God does not leave us empty-handed. It is according to his will that we have these gifts. It is according to his work that we have these gifts. God does not leave his people empty-handed. I'll just finish just, just briefly with um, verses 9 to 10. And, and in verses 9 to 10, it's, it's parenthetical. It's kind of Paul just throwing in a little commentary on what he means by um, what, what, what he's... So in, in verse 7, in verse 8, Paul is talking about verse 7. And then in verse 9 to 10, he's talking about his usage of verse, of verse 8. So basically in verses 9 and 10, um, there's kind of three traditional views about what it means that Christ ascent, it like descended. So in order for him to ascend, what Paul is saying is that in order for Christ to ascend or go up to heaven, he first had to come down because um, he had to come down and, and be like us and then go back up. And there's kind of three traditional views. One is the incarnation. So when what descended means is that Christ came down and just took on flesh. Um, another view is that he actually descended down into hell to preach the gospel to those in hell. And you can see um, some evidence for that in, in, in Peter's epistles. Um, and then the third one is that it was his burial in the tomb. So he descended all the way into the lower regions um, of the earth, not the lower regions, which are the, which is the earth, but the lower regions of the earth. However, uh, with, with John Stott, I'm going to actually argue for a fourth view. And while all of these things could have happened, Jesus definitely came uh, as the incarnate word of God. So incarnation for sure. He definitely did preach to spirits uh, in, in Hades, in, in the underworld. Um, and you'll see that again in First and Second Peter. He definitely was buried in the tomb and he definitely rose again and then ascended. So all, these, all those three things are, are, are accurate. But what I think Paul is saying here, that he descended, is actually we'll go a fourth secret view and that it's not actually spatial and what that means is that the incarnation his descent into hades and his burial in the tomb are all in time and space they're limited to the here and the now to specific locations specific times it's not spatial because as we see in philippians chapter 2 
what's happening there is Christ's descend and then ascend is his humiliation and his exaltation. Christ came in the likeness of a man. He humbled himself to death. He humbled himself to death on the cross. And because of that, he was exalted. So that's, that's kind of the view there. So I'll quote um, Brian Chappell. Despite these complex issues, the clear message is that Jesus has dominion over heaven and earth. And thus he has the authority. He has the authority to dispense gifts here on earth as he wishes. He has the authority to dispense gifts to whom he wishes. He has the authority to dispense gifts in the proportion that he wishes. And with the expectation that we will respect his authority to dispense his gifts among his people as he knows best. What Brian Chappell is saying is that he's, Jesus did all of this. He has the authority, not you. He will give you gifts. You won't choose them. And it is by his work that we have them, not ours. He will dispense them as he wishes, to whom he wishes, in the proportion that he wishes, and with the expectation that we say, yes, Lord, I will not grumble because I wanted that gift or that gift. We will say, yes, Lord, thou knowest. You have given me these gifts and I will use them for your sake, whatever uh, proportion I have them in. Let's summarize. First, as Paul says, these, these gifts are not according to our will. It's not by our will that we have these gifts. These gifts are not ours to choose or take hold of. It is Christ, Christ himself, who gives to each one according as he wills. It is the Spirit who gives to each individual as he wills. And it is the Father who puts us in the position of the body as he chooses. So again, it's this Trinitarian, Trinitarian language. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit giving gifts, putting us in positions, and distributing according to um, the proportion, uh, according to their will. Uh, as, as, as people there, as the three, three persons. Our second point is that it's not by our work. It is the victor who apportions the spoils. Christ is the victor, and because Christ is the victor, he is the one who gives gifts to men. He is the one who determines when and where and what. It's the victor who apportions the spoils. So God has given us these gifts for each other. And as we go on, we'll, we'll continue to look at them. We've looked at them before, especially Romans 12 and, and 1 Corinthians 12. But we have to remember that um, these gifts are given for the building up of the body. We'll see that next week as well. These gifts, on, on one level, what it means to, to have these gifts is actually to, to be gifted to each other. It's individual, we're each given gifts, but it's also corporate. We are to use those gifts not for ourselves, but for the building up of each other. God gives the foot the gift of being a foot. It is a gift to be a foot. It's a gift to be a hand. But God has also given the foot the gift of the hand. And he's given the hand the gift of the foot. 
If you're a hand, we'll stick with this analogy that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12. If you're a hand, God has made you a hand specifically. And he has given you, as a hand, he has given you uh, the rest of the body, and he has given you to the rest of the body. You cannot separate the parts from the whole. If I am a hand, I cannot survive without you, whatever position you are in the body. If I'm a kneecap, I still need the hand. If I'm a finger, I need the hand to survive. If I'm if I'm a kneecap, I still need the hand. Because I'm not at 100% if the body's not at 100%. If the body is missing a leg or missing a hand or missing an eyeball, it's not at 100%. And it's not growing as it should be. We'll look at this uh, a lot more in detail next week, but um, I just wanted to finish with with the challenge to um, to look at at these steps and and really search our hearts. We need to be careful because here's the secret: is that verses one to six come before verse seven. First, we need to walk worthy of our calling. First, we need to walk worthy of our calling. We need to walk in the spirit and not the flesh. Only then, only then can we come together in unity. And only then can we actually walk together in diversity using our gifts. We cannot get to step three without first getting through steps one and two. We cannot think about trying to exercise our spiritual gifts when we're walking in the works of the flesh. We first need to repent and then move on to step two and then move on to step three. So what do we do? Well, first, we need to search our hearts. We need to seek God. We need to seek him and ask him to show us our sins. If we are in Christ, and this is something that we're going to do, it doesn't mean it's not, it's not painful. It doesn't mean it's not scary. It doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to obedience. But if we are in Christ, it's something we will do because we have to. We've tasted of the living waters. And we cannot stay away for long. The muddy waters start to lose their savor. And we come back. However, if you're not in Christ, if you're not born again, then you need to stop hiding your sin in the subfloors of your basement. You need to stop putting the minotaur in the labyrinth to hide away from it, to hide the shame and the fear and the guilt. You need to stop hiding from yourself. Stop making excuses for your sin and dig it up. Expose it. Turn to Christ. Walk in the light. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Then and only then can we get to step two, which is to, to seek unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Have any of our actions broken down relationships that should be there? We can't wait for somebody else to take the step. The responsibility belongs to all of us to walk in unity. Finally, our third step and what we've, we've begun to look at today. <clears throat> ask the Lord to help you see and, and understand what your gifts may be. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. Look at Romans 12. Even here in Ephesians 4. Even places like Exodus 35. Ask the other Christians around you. Ask the people who know you what gifts you've exhibited over the years. Take a spiritual gift inventory, but be wary. They, they, they don't always get it right. You need to, to test your gifts and, and walk by um, 
walk in the light of, of scripture and, and, and experience and, and what other people are saying and how uh, your life has exhibited those gifts. Doesn't mean they're wrong, but just, just be wary. Seek to know what your gifts are. But remember that the greater call is to love one another. 1 Corinthians 13 is this massive chapter on love, and it's it's one of the most quoted um, Bible chapters in all of history. It's, it's probably at every wedding that you've ever been to, they, they read from 1 Corinthians 13. But here's another secret. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 comes after 1 Corinthians 12. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul has just talked about what it means to be the body. What it means to have a diversity of gifts in the body. And then he says in verse in chapter 13, you can have all of these gifts apportioned to you so much that you're the most amazing person in the world and the most humble. You can have them all. But without love, they're empty. So we go back to John 13 and John 15, where Jesus says, they, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another, by your self-sacrifice for one another. The world will see that you are my disciples. Remember, it doesn't mean that they're going to like you. It doesn't mean that they're going to like Jesus. But they'll know that we're Jesus' disciples, regardless of what they think of him. Right now, the world does not see a bunch of disciples of Jesus. They do not see people who love one another. They do not see who people. They do not see people who love Jesus and and want to walk uprightly. What the world sees is a bunch of cowardly, soft-skinned chumps who have nothing to say and no gospel to preach. Why is that? Why such harsh language? How can we ever tell someone the gospel? How can we ever tell them to repent of their sin and trust in Christ, the only sacrifice for that sin? How can we tell them to do that when we just look like them, when we look exactly like them, when we're in the same sins as they are, when we're doing exactly the same things the world does? How can we tell them to repent? And trust in Christ when we don't. How can we share the love of Christ in his atoning death when we walk all over it? The world looks at the church and wants nothing to do with it. Not because we love each other. And not because we are salt and light. But because it's empty. But God always calls us back. Over and over again, in the Old Testament, you see Israel walking away, forgetting the Lord, forgetting his statutes, building the cisterns so they can sustain themselves. That's uh, Jeremiah 2. Walking after other gods over and over and over again. And they get sent into exile. But God brings them back. God is always calling us back to him. So let us turn to him away from our carnal ways, away from our ways of walking in the flesh, and let us walk by the Spirit. Let us walk by the Spirit first as individuals 
and then seek the unity that is there, that needs to be there. Only then can we get to the diversity that Christ has set out for us. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you again for your word. Lord, it, it cuts us deep. Your word is, is alive. Lord, it moves. It is active. And it cuts us. It splits us apart. And because of that, Lord, we, we turn away from it so often. We leave it on the shelf. Because we cannot bear the pain and the discomfort of having you confront us with our own sin. We cannot bear the shame and the, and the guilt of standing naked before you. So Lord, grant us the courage to open up your word and read it. Soothe us, Lord. Comfort us as we grieve and as we mourn over our sins. Draw us in. Evermore, Lord, draw us in. Grant us hope continually. Grant us an understanding of the true depth of Christ's atoning work. We thank you that you are faithful, Lord, when we are not. Lord, come. Come and work in this church. Come and work in this town. By your, by your spirit, Lord, by your power, come and work in us. For your name's sake and for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' precious name, amen. Finish with uh, number six again. Um, the ironic blessing where uh, the Lord blesses his people. And, and it's this idea that to be blessed by the Lord is to be looked on by him approvingly. And we have that in Christ. Because of Christ's propitiation, because of, because of Christ's atoning work, because he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. Because of that, God looks down upon us approvingly. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his son saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel, you shall say to them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine down upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, God's people, and I shall bless them. So in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Embers in the Dark. I hope it was edifying. 
uh, and that that was able to help you grow in the knowledge of the truth. Have a good week.